so thank you for supporting that. Let's turn our attention now to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 6. And as we before we dive into this passage, I just want to mention the these verses here are loaded with Old Testament references and Old Testament allusions. There are dozens of them in this passage. In the community group guide, the discussion guide, that hopefully you picked up on the way in, um, I've put a whole bunch of questions so hopefully you can gain, you can understand some of the connections that are happening that the author John has included here and that Jesus says in what he is talking about. Where we find ourselves in this passage is that Jesus has just performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 plus, that was 5,000 men plus women and children, so 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. After feeding them, he, the disciples go to the other side of the lake. The crowd wants to make him king. Jesus withdraws. He walks on water, meets, meets with his disciples. The crowd cannot find him, and so the crowd runs around to the other side of the lake the next day, and they find him in order to, uh, in order to meet him and also, as Jesus said, to get some more bread from them. Last week, we focused on verse 29, which says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Our story, this, our story this week picks up in verse 30 after Jesus has begun to have this interaction. They responded, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Just then, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. We're going to pause there. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his words. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed teach us and instruct us, that we would know what it means that you are the bread of life, and that in knowing you, we would come to believe in you. And in coming in to believe in you, we would feed upon you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. This passage begins the first of several very offensive statements that Jesus is making. And I believe that if we understand what Jesus is saying here, the offense given today is no less than the offense was given years ago. So we're going to examine first off is the offense of Christianity and the offense of Jesus and then the offer that Jesus gives. The way that we're going to do it is going to be by dissecting this statement that Jesus makes of that Jesus makes of saying, I am the bread of life. So let's dive in and look at this and try to understand why it is so offensive what Jesus is saying here and how people react to this statement. Begins in verse 33. Jesus says to them, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What is he saying to the Jews who are grumbling and gathered around? For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven. Who is that? Well, it was the one who was sent by God, namely Jesus himself. But the people don't exactly understand what he is saying, so they respond in verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always, meaning we would like a lifetime supply of bread. If you can give that to us, that would be great. Give that to us so we have this lifetime supply of bread and it never goes away. Understanding that they did not comprehend what he was stating, Jesus responds to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But people still did not believe in Jesus. So he makes it clear that he is the one who is from God, who comes down from heaven, and he states explicitly, I am the bread of life. And they do not believe in him. Verse 36 tells us exactly that. Jesus says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They have seen Jesus, they have seen him do the miracles, and they do not believe in God. And they do not believe in Jesus, and therefore they do not believe God. You see, there are different approaches in trying to deal with Jesus. Different approaches and ways to try to figure out why what he says doesn't apply to you or doesn't particularly relate to you. One of the prominent ones back then, which is still today, is the idea of saying, Jesus, who's he? Well, whoever he is, he's not God. And that's the first interaction that Jesus has with the crowd here. He does this miracle, the crowd gathers around, and notice the crowd's response to him and the Jews' response to him. He says to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from from heaven to eat. The response to Jesus is, you're saying you're from heaven. Prove it. Now, uh, for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, um, this is a little bit like a a second breakfast moment here, right? He just fed 5,000 people. 
So if you remember from Lord of the Rings, Merry and Pippin say to Aragorn, what about breakfast? Aragorn responds, you already had it. And they say, well, we've had one, yes, but what about second breakfast? What's happening in this passage is that the crowd just got fed by Jesus in a massive miracle. Jesus says to them that the work is to believe in him who he sent, and their response is, what sign do you give us to prove that you are who you say you are? And Jesus is like, I just did a miracle. And they say, well, that was first miracle. This is second miracle, right? Is that they don't believe it. A more charitable reading of what's going on here is that the crowd has come, and they know that Jesus just fed 5,000 people. But likely what they're thinking is that Scripture indicated that there would be one who, would, who was to come who was going to be greater than Moses. And so Jesus just fed them in the desert. And so the thought would be that if there's one who is coming who is greater than Moses, he's got to do something bigger and better than just feeding people in the wilderness like Moses. Either way, the issue that's coming up here is that the crowd's gathered around and they do not believe that Jesus is God. They're saying, prove it, and they don't believe it. The other way that they seek to discredit who Jesus is is a little bit similar, more similar to today, comes in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, and because he, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? What they're identifying is, how on earth can Jesus be God? We know his parents, we know where he comes from. How can he all of a sudden say now that he's divine? We know his family, and we know they're not divine. How can he be making this claim? He's obviously not God. The way that this gets expressed today is that people try to, people who are opposed to Christianity, try to uh, discredit this idea that Jesus is God. They say, Jesus is not God. In fact, we know how Jesus came to be. So the argument that, that, is, that you hear today is that it is referred to as the quest for the historical Jesus. And so they, if you get National Geographic, the History Channel, things that you'll see on television, you'll, BBC runs one periodically, who is the real Jesus? This one here on the National Geographic says, what, arche, what archaeology reveals about his life? What's the assumption? The assumption is that the Bible, the testimony of what you have about Jesus in Scripture, is not reliable. It's not reliable and it's not trustworthy. In fact, they would argue, Jesus' followers just made Jesus out to be something that he never sought to be. He never claimed to be God. His followers just made that up. And it was those followers who wrote the Bible. And so there are these periodic things to say, well, who is the real Jesus? Let's figure out who he really is. Let's figure out where he really comes from because he can't be God. That's the line of argument. The people in, the, in this passage are saying, well, we know where he comes from, so therefore he is, he is not God. This raises the whole issue of the reliability of the New Testament, which is a much bigger topic than I've got time to address this morning. But if you're interested in that, I've got a lot of really good resources on it that I'd love to share with you. And the bottom line is this. I believe that if you examine the evidence for the reliability of Scripture and the reliability of the New Testament, if you actually sit down and examine the evidence yourself, and not what somebody else says about the evidence, but if you examine the evidence, I believe it is much harder to believe in the unreliability of the Bible than it is to believe 
and the reliability of the Bible. And I'd love to talk that through with you if you've got some questions at the point of time. But the way that they are dealing with the offense of Jesus' claim that he is God, the way that they're dealing with it is to say, nope, he's not God. And since he's not God, he's just another person, and I don't really have to listen to him unless he proves something bigger and better. The second approach, more common today, that people seek to deal with the offense of who Jesus is, is they say, well, we know that Jesus didn't claim to be God, which he clearly didn't, but his followers made him out to be something that he wasn't. But rather, Jesus came to be one who just simply points people to God. He's the one who came, he's one of the great teachers of the world, and he came to provide directions and instructions on how to find God, how to find the bread of life, how to find that which truly satisfies. He's just one of these world's great religious teachers. And this idea, saying that Jesus is not God, he just points to where, he just points to God, has appeal for a couple reasons. A few years ago, actually when I was in high school, I decided that I was going to bake an angel food cake from scratch. I was hungry, I wanted an angel food cake, there was no mix in the cabinet, I'm going to make an angel food cake from, from scratch. But instead, and I followed the direction, directions and I was a pretty good cook, but instead of getting this light, fluffy angel food cake, I, I baked a brick. I mean, it, it was awful. And so I'm thinking through this and saying, wait a second, I followed the directions and it didn't work. Well, maybe I need to go back and follow the directions again. Maybe I need to go try again. Maybe I need to improve my technique. Maybe I, I need to fold the flour in a little bit more gently when I'm mixing the egg whites together. Maybe I just need to improve my techniques, technique on this. And the, the appeal of saying that Jesus is the one that points to God and he gives directions is that I'm the one who remains in control. That it's still completely dependent upon me. I can do this. I can bake an angel food cake, and if I fail the first time, I'll try again. Jesus is the one that gives me the directions. Well, I'll try it. If it doesn't work out, I'll just try it again. This is all on me. And I like it because I feel like I'm in control. This is the, the, the Home Depot theology of your relationship to God. Home Depot, you can do it. We can help. The Home Depot theology version is you can do it. God can help. He gives you instructions. He just helps you along your way a little bit, but you can do it. You've got it within you. And so the appeal is that it's this self-reliance that you, that you have the capacity to do this, to know God and to find God. Jesus isn't God. He just points to it. Third way, commonly today, that people seek to deal with the aspect of the offense that Jesus himself saying that he is God, that he is divine, is that people say, well, yes, of course Jesus was divine. And Jesus was divine just in the same way that you can become divine. And Jesus is the one who shows you how you can become divine, how you can become a God, how you can find and release your inner divine, your inner deity, how you can release your inner power, and that you too can become divine. Of course, this is present in some of the world's religions like Hinduism and Jainism, but it's also present in various distorted and mutated forms of Christianity, such as Mormonism, such as various offshoots of Scientology and the other cults that are present within our country. And their argument is that, yeah, Jesus was divine, and you can become divine too. But all three of these different approaches, whether you outright deny it, 
whether you deny it and say Jesus points to something else that you can do, or you say that Jesus was divine, that you too can become divine, what all three of those approaches do is that they seek to ignore and minimize Jesus and put a greater reliance and greater dependence upon yourself. Yes, you can do this. But what Christianity teaches is that the reason why Jesus came is not to point to bread. It's over there. He didn't come to teach you how to bake your own bread. He didn't come to show you how you yourself can become bread yourself. He came declaring, I am the bread of life. That it is found in him. Scripture shows us is that each and every person was not created divine, but they were created in the image of the divine. They were created in the image of, image of God. And that image became corrupted and it became distorted. And the reason why Jesus came was that the image of God can be restored only through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That means that the divine is Jesus and not you. It means that what sustains you and nourishes you is Jesus and not you. Why? Because he is the one who is himself the bread of life. Now, what does Jesus mean by that image? What does he mean when he says that I am bread? There's two things that we can pick up here about the significance of this. The first is, what is bread? Well, bread is food. But food, bread back then was a lot more important to the people at the time than it was to us, than it is to us today. At the time, there was, um, people did not eat meat on a regular basis. Um, they had very few vegetables, mostly root vegetables. Um, cucumbers, if the famine didn't come and the, and the famine didn't destroy it, had cucumbers. They also had leeks, lots and lots of leeks. And who doesn't like a good leek, right? <laughs> And, uh, and most of the crops that they grew, they grew them to grow the grains so that they could make bread. Far more important than it is for us today. In fact, there are people who go out of their way to not eat bread. In fact, there are people, maybe some in this room, who, who take diets to even eliminate bread from their life and anything that would be like that, Right? And, you know, they're longing for the new heavens and the new earth when they get to eat the good things of life like bread, right? And there are people who eliminate it. Is that, but bread back then was far more important because for a meal, your meal might just simply be bread itself. And so bread came to symbolize within the culture, bread came to symbolize life itself. And certainly this image of bread, it is this bread which fills your hunger, you need to eat bread because bread sustains you, it nourishes you, it gives you energy, it upholds you. Verse 35, Jesus makes clear, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. I would be surprised if there is anyone in this room who really knew what it meant to hunger in the way that people back then knew what it meant to hunger. I mean, physically, I don't hunger because I have a massive insulated box in my home, and I've got cabinets full of food. And if for some reason I run out of one particular food item, I can drive five, minute to, five minutes to dozens of different gigantic boxes that are filled and filled with lots and lots of different types of food. So I don't hunger. 
And the reason why I don't hunger, praise the Lord, is because there is food readily available. It is readily available. But when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, what he is identifying is that spiritually, you will not hunger because the bread of life keeps feeding you. It continues to sustain you, continues to strengthen you spiritually and eternally, that it fills and satisfies the deep spiritual hunger and continually feeds you in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the first thing that the bread is a picture of, it's a picture of food and that Jesus is the spiritual food that sustains us and gives us a relationship with God and strengthens us for what he calls us to do. The second aspect of bread and the significance of it is that bread is food, but bread is also fellowship. It is also fellowship. Is that bread, when people would eat together, when they would break bread together, that was a very intimate and personal occurrence, far more so than it is today. I mean, right now you can go to the new Starbucks. There's a giant 18-foot table. You can go get whatever food that you want and sit down with complete strangers and share the table with them, right? You can do that. And I suppose that sharing a table with somebody is a bit more intimate than sitting at a table at the opposite side of the room. I mean, at least you're at the same table. But there's different levels of intimacy. And so then maybe you meet up with a friend and you go to Panera and you grab some lunch. And so you both get food and you sit down at a table and you eat together. Well, that's a different level of an intimacy than inviting someone over to your home and preparing them a meal and sitting around your own table and eating with them. That's the image, that level of intimacy, of sharing your home, sharing your relationship, is what is pictured by eating bread together. This concept was so important to the Jews in particular that we serve a God who not only gives us bread, but we serve a God who desires to eat it with us, a God who desires to have fellowship with us. So what Jesus says here in verse 33 is, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is an allusion to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was something called the bread of presence, or sometimes also referred to as the showbread. And what the bread of presence was, is that in the temple and in the tabernacle, is that the priests were required to bake a dozen cakes of bread, a dozen loaves of bread, and they would be stacked up in two piles, two piles of six, And they would be there. Now, unlike pagan deities where you would prepare a meal for your deity so that the deity would then eat it and you could appease your deity, what was required of the bread of the presence is that the priests had to share the meal in the presence of God. They had to eat the meal in the presence of God. That eating the bread of God, eating the showbread, was a meal of fellowship with God. That it was communing with God, having a relationship with him, that we serve and worship a God who desires to eat with you and who desires to be with you and who gives generously and provides generously, even 12 loaves, who provides generously and who wants to commune with you and eat with you. But the, but the priests were the only ones who were allowed to do that. They were the only ones who ate the bread in the presence of God. But what Jesus says is this, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What Jesus is identifying is that he is the one through whom the bread of God is offered to the world. That anybody, 
can come and dine with him. Anybody can come and have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Anyone can know God and have this intimate relationship with him and commune with him and dine with him. How? Through the bread of God, who is Jesus Christ himself. The bread here is a picture of food and it's a picture of fellowship with God. But that does beg the question a little bit. So how exactly do you consume this bread? How do you feed upon the bread of life? Well, verse 35 and 40 make that clear. And this will be really important for us as we look at the passage next week where this gets a lot more complicated. In 35 and 40, Jesus says this, here's how you feed upon it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How do you feed upon the bread of life? You come to Jesus and you believe. Verse 40 states it similarly. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how do you consume the bread of life? How do you feed upon the bread of life? You do so by believing in him. Now let's clarify what that means, because that word today is thrown out in so many different regards. You know, I believe, I believe that in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I believe in FDR. I believe that he really existed. I believe that he was a real person. I believe that he, that he did stuff. Um, but you know what? FDR does not do anything for me today. FDR does not have a dynamic relationship with me today. And so to believe in Jesus is not just to believe in these facts about him, but it's actually to trust him, to trust him personally and to trust him individually. And to say, and even to say to him, I believe in you. I believe that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the bread of life, that you are the living God who died on this earth and rose from this grave, that we might have new life and have life abundant in him and in you, Lord Jesus. I believe. And that's how you consume it. And Jesus clarifies the offer that he is giving in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How do you feed on the bread? You come to the bread and you believe. You come to Jesus and you believe in Jesus. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The promise that is being offered here is that no one should ever think, well, maybe I'm not one that the Father has given to him. Maybe I'm not one, I'm not, I'm not one who's been chosen by Jesus. We should never think that, no one should ever think, well, well, if I do come to Jesus and if I do believe in Jesus and if I come to him, that he's going to reject me. He's going to throw me out. Jesus says the opposite. No, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What Jesus is identifying and saying here is that when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we're trusting in him, you are feeding on the bread of life. You are fellowshipping through the bread of life. You are getting bread when you come to Jesus and when you believe in him. And the amazing way that God works is what happens is that when you come and you believe in Jesus is that you begin to realize that behind your very willing decision to believe in Jesus and trust in him, you will come to realize the mysterious work of God 
that he has been drawing you to himself all along. That you have all that the Father gives to me will come to me. That those who come to Jesus are those who have been given to, to Jesus by the Father. And those who come to Jesus will be preserved by Jesus and will be resurrected on the last day. The encouragement is this, is that if you are in Jesus, he will not lose you. Because he is the bread of life. Now let's take a look at that last piece of this, the bread of life. What does it mean that he's not just bread, but the bread of life? Life in the Gospel of John and Scripture more broadly, as the Scripture uses it, indicates life is the fullness of life. It's, it's the blessings of God, being in the presence and favor of God. The opposite of having life is death and having God as your adversary and being, being cursed. And this text says... For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What does this, the bread of life, do? He gives life, the fullness of life to the world. And if you look at these few verses that are here that we're looking at today, over eight times in just these few verses, the word life or living is used. And if you expand it to the whole chapter, it is many, many more times that specifically the idea of life and God giving life is highlighted. And what he means by life is not just simply existence, I'm alive, but the fullness of life and living in the, in the, in the abundance of life and being alive. Like, I feel alive. Being alive. Sin brings death and destruction. If you sin against another person, there is a division that occurs in your relationship. And if you sin again, it is divided further. There is a destruction that occurs. There is death that occurs to your relationship through sin. And what Jesus is, is that he is the bread of life. He is the one who brings life, life abundant. He is the one who forgives sin and who restores the damage and destruction of sin. And that begins now. Through this series on John, we've seen a variety of different ways that Jesus brings life and life abundant. Early on, we saw that Jesus is the one who brings the wine that never runs out. He's the one who keeps the party going. We see Jesus bringing life, that Jesus is the one who gives life by healing spiritual paralysis. That Jesus brings life by bringing the living water that quenches the deep soul thirst that each of us has. And that when we believe in the living water, Jesus Christ, that there is a, a wellspring that comes up inside of us that continues to satisfy us and give life to others. We've seen that Jesus brings life by being light in the darkness. And here, that he is the bread of life. Certainly there's a lot to explore. You know, just what do you feed on to give you life? What do you feed on to, to feel alive? And the reality of Scripture is that outside of Jesus Christ, anything that you are feeding on to give you life will lead you, leave you disappointed, and you will hunger again. But I want to focus on a different aspect of life that we haven't considered as much in this series, which is the eternal aspect. Not just the life that Christ brings now, but the life that continues into eternity. Verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's present tense. It's not whoever believes 
will one day receive eternal life at some future state when Jesus returns or you meet Jesus, then you're going to get eternal life. He says, no, present tense. Right now, whoever believes has eternal life. It begins in this moment and continues to eternity. Verse 30, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. A life, of a, life abundant that continues into eternity. Now let's take a few moments just to think about this. And the way that I'm going to do this here is I'm going to read a section from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with the series, The Chronicles of Narnia speak of this other world where four children and then some other children get drawn into Narnia, this magical land where there's a battle between good and evil, where animals can speak, um, this battle between good and evil, and there's this creature named Aslan who is the Christ figure and who meets the children. In the last battle, um, it is indeed what the title says, it is the last battle leading to the end of the world. And in the final scene, the children get thrust from the world, old world of Narnia, from this world, into the eternal world. And this is how it's described, and I think it gives us a helpful picture just to think about the eternal aspects. He writes, It is hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, it's as hard to explain that as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You have, may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or that looked out on a green valley that wound away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the win window, there may have been a looking glass or a mirror. And as you turned away from the window... You suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were, one in, were in one sense just as the same as the real ones, yet at the same time they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground, and he neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. And the reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this, Come further up and come further in. The end of the book, the children meet Aslan, and he explains to them how they had died. He says, there was a railway accident, Aslan said softly. Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended, and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to after that, 
that happened after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on and on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And the same is true for us if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That every day that you wake up in eternity will be better than the day before. And the best things in the life that you have lived on this earth will merely be the cover picture and the introduction for a life that continues where every chapter is better than what has gone before. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And through him, now, we gain food. Through him now, we gain fellowship. But we will be feasting on the bread of life for eternity. So that means for right now, what this means for us, it's a calling for us to believe in him and to feed upon Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the bread of life, that you don't point to it as if we could get there on our own, but Lord, you are the bread of life, the bread of God that came down from heaven so that we might have life and have life abundantly that begins now and continues to eternity. So Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, that you would commune with us that we would know you and know the bread of life. And Father, for those here who have been feeding on all kinds of other things to give themselves life, but only end up more hungry, Lord Jesus, would you meet them today and may they turn and trust in you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Please rise and join us as we celebrate the bread of life.